You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. We started a series last week called I Hate This, and we are talking about hate from a biblical perspective. We're taking on this subject of hate, um, and we started last week uh, talking about hate, and we introduced the subject by saying that hate is not simply something that is out there in the ether of the atmosphere, like just out there that you can catch, but hate exists out there because hate is first in here, in the human heart, and when hate is nurtured in here, that's how hate proliferates and gets out there. Now, we talked about hate as a human capacity and how hate needs to be nurtured as a human capacity. Just like love, it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be uh, fed, it needs to be uh, uh, cultivated. And uh, we talked about how the primary reason, according to psychologists and psychotherapists, for hate to be generated and to be cultivated in human beings is loss of freedom. And then we concluded with the words of Jesus where he said that we should love not only our neighbors, not only our friends, not only those we know, not only our family members, but we should love our enemies. And that's a tall order. Jesus was just putting it out there. Listen, you should love your enemies. But he didn't do that requiring us to simply come up with a way to do it and and figure out to do it in our own strength. He reminded us that we are children of God. And he reminded us of our identity. And in his words, he said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So there's no loss of freedom in him. In him, there's only freedom. And we are free to love and free from any hold of hate. And today I want to talk to you about hate as a work of the flesh. Scripture explains to us and and teaches us that hate is a work of the flesh. Specifically in Galatians 5.20, there's a scripture there where it lists the works of the flesh, and one of them is hatred. In some translations, in Galatians 5.20, you will will read the word enmity. But the original word there is ekthra. Can everybody say ekthra? I'm teasing you. It means hatred. Hatred towards another. Hatred that takes action, action upon another. And the scriptures tells us that that is a work of the flesh. Now, it's very important for us to be able to identify hate as a work of the flesh, to make the connection between hate and the flesh, because it is under the realm of the flesh that our failures happen. Every single moral, ethical, or relational failure you've had happened in the realm of the flesh. Every single moral, ethical failure we see in our world today happened in the realm of the flesh. And that is true as well as it pertains to hate because hate operates. When hate is seized and it operates, it happens in the realm 
of the flesh. So we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about flesh so we can understand how hate operates. And there's a passage where the Apostle Paul addresses the flesh very specifically. It's found in Romans chapter, five, chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. And he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. What he's saying here is that there are two ways that you can try to live right. There are two ways that you and I can try to live right. One way is through the flesh. We can try to do the right things in the flesh. Second way is in the spirit. We can try to live right and do the right things in the spirit. And the apostle Paul drives this, this, this distinction very adamantly, because being a Pharisee and a, stud, and, a, and a student, not only a student, but a scholar and, a, and a, a, an authority in the law, he knows that the outworkings of the law, for you to be able to accomplish the law in your flesh, it will be very difficult. And he, he knows already that the result will be DOA, dead on arrival. He already knows. He's sure and he's assuring us that if you try to do this on your own strength with your flesh, it's going to be um, bad. Like you're not going to be able to reach it because it's like something imperfect attempting perfection on its own. And that's what happens in the realm of the flesh. The flesh wants exactly the opposite of God's law. It wants exactly the opposite of what we should do. Now, how can Paul be so adamant about this? How can he be so sure? How can he write with such confidence to talk about these two realms, these two realities? Well, Paul, I believe, can do that, and he can write to Roman Jews and to his Roman audience because he understands that Jewish and Gentiles, and that's just a uh, fancy word for non-Jews, which means everybody else. He knows that Jewish people and non-Jewish people all have the same nature. We all have the same nature. And Paul argument, Paul's argument here is a lot more about nature than it is about nurture. It's a lot more about your nature, my nature, our common nature, than it is about nurture. In other words, it's no more, more about the thing that causes the behavior than it is the behavior itself. It's more about what is appropriating your capacities, capacities than it is about the capacity itself. And that uh, is how we should look at hate when we look at this scripture because what he's saying is it's not just about hate as a capacity but it's about what is appropriating that capacity and what kind of motivation is using that capacity and for what purpose. Because if you have a skewed uh, nature withholding a capacity that might have been intended for good, the outcome is not going to be good. In this case, nature controls nurture. 
Now, this word nature in Scripture, just like the word hate, has a broader uh, scope, has a broader application than we use it for in 2017. The word nature can mean two things. The first thing it can mean is a mode of feeling and acting by which, by long habit, it has changed nature. It's a mode of feeling or acting that by long habit, meaning by the activity of doing the same thing again and again and again, it has changed nature. That's one of the meanings in Scripture. But the second meaning is the, the, the very primary elements of something, the essence, the very essence that makes something, the very basic and elementary things that make up something. And I, I believe this is why Paul can be so bold because of that essence. This is why Jesus can be so bold and tell you that you should love your enemies. This is why Paul can be so bold and say, listen, if you're living in the flesh, you're working against God, and you cannot please God. But if you live in the Spirit, then you can please God. Because what, if you remember from last week, what Jesus invoked is our identity. What Jesus invoked is that you and I are children of God. Now, Jesus was talking to a broad audience. He was talking to people from all walks of life. He wasn't just talking about his posse. He wasn't just talking about his group. He was talking about... Every single person. And when Jesus addressed every single person, if you read through the Gospels, he would always use language like, our Father in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Our heavenly Father. What, what was he saying? Every single person that has ever lived is a child of God. Every single person that exists came from the same essence. Came from the same power. Received life from the same God. Every single person, regardless of how they're living right now, they are a child of God. And for you to be a child, you need the nature of your parent. For you to be a child, you need the essence of your father, of your parent. So Jesus used this, this familiar imagery to show us that every single one of us, we have this basic essence. And Paul is invoking this same thought they say, listen, from this basic essence, there are two lives that can spring out of. The life of the flesh, which leads to hate, and the life of the spirit. And if you live on this life, on this side of life, it's going to be difficult for you to please God. You will have no relationship with God. So we have to go to that level even further because... It is in that realm, the realm of the, our essence, of where we come from, that, God can, that Jesus can tell, you, can tell you to be perfect as your Father is perfect in heaven. Now, it seems unattainable. How can he do that? Because there's already an essence in us that draws toward God. There's already an essence in us that identifies with God, that identifies with the divine and one of the reasons why you, you can see that, even if you're not a Christian but you're here today, is that when you hear a message or you read a scripture or you hear somebody calling you out of a mistake, call, calling you out of a, of a type of behavior that you know is wrong, you don't feel unrightly judged. You don't really feel like 
you know, you may feel uncomfortable, you might feel confronted, but you don't really feel unloved. Because you know, in your heart of hearts, that deep, deep inside, you are not that person that behaved that way. And I'm sure that if I take a poll here, you don't have to do that, but if I take a poll here and I ask, how many of you have ever done something that you felt like was not yourself? I believe most hands will go, probably both hands. It's me. (laughs) I have been there. Why? Because somehow your behavior, somehow what you did was disconnected from the very deep essence. And we're going to look into that because that's how hate proliferates. See, we know that, and you might be thinking in your head, well, that's, a, that's very much a biblical perspective. Well, it's not really. We know that because we have sayings like, well, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. When we do something, we can say, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect. There are 7 billion people in the world plus And we have the confidence to say, not every single one of the 7 billion plus is perfect. You don't need to meet them to know that they're not perfect. You don't need to hear everybody's story to know that they are not perfect. But in in assuring that, in saying that, in believing that, what are we affirming? We are affirming that there is a perfect. When we say, I am not perfect, nobody's perfect, in our minds we understand this. There is a perfect. There is a measure. There is a a, a standard. There is a perfect by which we measure ourselves. And guess what? Nobody can reach it on their own because we are in the flesh, according to Paul. It is the imperfection that proves that perfection exists. It works like this. Blindness, if you lose your eyesight here today, if there's a glare in your light in your eye and you temporarily lose your eyesight, the discomfort, the imperfection in your eyes will prove to you that your eyes are made for sight. It will confirm and affirm to you that that is the purpose of your eyes to see, that for your eyes to work perfectly, you should see. The sight should be restored and it should be perfect. If, you, if you, your hearing is affected, that's what you're going to realize. Well, I don't have my hearing. It should work perfectly. My hearing should work well. My ears should work for hearing. That actually happened to me. I started uh, losing my hearing in the mornings. And then I would go for a run in the afternoon, and it would clear up. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's my body telling me, go run. <laughs> but then it started getting worse. I would get this tune. It started with my right ear, just this humming thing, very deep. And then it got worse and worse, and a week went by, two weeks went by, and then it was really bad. I couldn't chew, and it was something in this year. And then this year started getting affected, and all I heard in this year was like a low humming. It was like, the whole time, all day. And I'm like, oh, man. And then people would talk to me, and I was like, you know? Like, like there's water in your eye. Your, like, I'm, I'm sorry. I actually had to preach for two weekends like that here. Hearing him, I said, I'm like, Jesus, please. Went to the doctor finally. And I'm like, I, have, I must have a cold or something because I can't hear out of the right ear. And it's starting to freak me out. So, 
it took him two seconds for him to look at me, touch right here on my jaw, and he said, you know, I think, I think you have TMJ. I think you've been grinding your teeth too much, and your teeth, by the way you're grinding your teeth, you're inflaming the muscles up here and it's affecting your eardrum. It's inflaming your whole hearing. And you've been must, you must be grinding your teeth pretty badly. Have you been under stress lately? And I paused for a minute and I thought, well, we moved states, have no family. Tried to find a job, couldn't find it in 2013. Starting a church. When we were starting a church, my wife got pregnant with twins. It was a risky pregnancy. Don't know if the kids were going to live. Started the church and... And I just looked at him, maybe. <laughs> maybe. He said, yeah, that, that might be it, you know. You, you, I think you've been stressed. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> but what happened? During that time, all I could think of is, this is not the way my ear is supposed to operate. It is meant to work right. And it should. It should work right. And sometimes that's how we feel, that's how we feel about ourselves. Like, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't behave that way. I shouldn't feel this way. But sometimes what we try to remedy is the action. It's the behavior. But if we don't deal with that skewed nature, we're, never, we're always going to be battling with the outward appearance, with the outward behavior. That, should, that bothers us. It should bother us when we don't act right. So St. Augustine put it this way. He said this, every fault injures the nature, and it is contrary to the nature. The creature, therefore, who, love, who cleaves to, to God differs from those who do not, not by their nature, but by fault. And we know this. We agree with this. We understand this. That's why we have laws. That's why we have prisons. That's why we have correctional facilities. That's why we have fines. Because we all understand that there is a common sense that we should behave a certain way. If you didn't have this common essence and this common sense, then we would classify people according to their own nature. But we know that we all share a common nature. We all have the same nature. And this frames our society because we have the same nature. We know this, that in our perfect essence... In our perfect nature, we're not murderers. In our perfect nature, we're not liars. In our perfect nature, we're not cheaters. In our perfect nature, we're not any of those things. We act, we are supposed to act right. And Paul's argument, St. Augustine's argument, Jesus' argument is that that nature can get perverted. That nature can get attacked when we separate ourselves from our Heavenly Father. When we have a separation between us and God, that's when that nature gets affected. And how does that operate? How does that happen? Because Paul is pretty adamant when he talks about this distinction. He talks about the people will live according to the flesh. And some people will live according to the spirit. And those who live according to the flesh, the flesh will not please God. In other words, words, they will not tap into that essence, that essence, that godly essence in us. They will be disconnected from it. How does that happen? I have a story to share with you that's very interesting in how we actually psych ourselves to think that we're right. Right? There is a infamous, an infamous mobster that lived in the late 20s, early 30s, 
Uh, he was a New York guy. His nickname was Tugan Crowley. And Tugan Crowley was a bad guy. He was not a good guy. And he had that nickname because he always carried two guns with him. And he was known to kill people at the drop of a hat. You just, you know, you mess with him, bam, pop the cap. Done. And so he was on a side street in New York City in his car when a cop came uh, and asked for his license. No, that was the day he was captured. And a cop came, asked for his license. Tugan Coley didn't say a word. Just pulled a gun and killed the cop right there. And then he fled the scene. Well, a manhunt ensued. And whole, uh, New York City, NYPD, came looking and searching for Tugan Crowley. Finally, the girlfriend gave him up. She was in his, or he was in her apartment up on uh, 90th Street, Upper West Side of New York City. And they surrounded the place, and it was a gun battle. Tugan Crowley with his two guns and all the police officers just, there was a gun battle. I think some 700 bullets were fired. Four of them hit Tugan Crowley. And in that gun battle... He thought that was it. He thought he was going to die right there. So he wrote a note. He wrote a note that said, under my coat lies a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do no one any harm. He had just killed a cop. He had killed several people. He was shooting at police officers. And he said, under my coat, there's a weary heart that would do no one no harm. There's a kind heart in here. Well, he didn't die. <coughs> he didn't die that day. He was arrested. They took him. Uh, he was sentenced to the chair. And he, he, the sentence was, was uh, fulfilled at Sing Sing Penitentiary in, in New York City. On his way to be sentenced or, or out of the sentence, he was heard saying, this is what a man get, gets for protecting himself. This is what a man gets for protecting himself. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought, how can somebody who acts out in hate like that, how can somebody who shoots a police officer, kills a man who could have been a father, could have been a brother, a son, someone he never met, how can somebody who carries two guns to hurt people can say, here's a kind heart, and I would never do anybody no harm. All I was doing is protecting myself. How can he do that? Because of the flesh. Because the flesh is this skewed nature in us. The flesh skews the judgment. And this is what happens when flesh takes control. When the flesh takes control, it puts yourself in the throne of your life. It makes yourself king. And when you are king, you determine your morality you determine your own morality. You determine what is right and what is wrong. You decide what is right and what's wrong because you are the Lord of yourself. You are your God. Sounds harsh, J.D. Isn't that what freedom is all about? Isn't that what freedom is all about? I decide what's right and what's wrong for myself. I decide what, well, that's what Tugan Crowley would say. That's what Tugan Crowley, Tugan Crowley would say. That's what people who propagate hate would say, I'm just defending myself. I'm just taking care of myself. This is right in my own sight. And that's what the flesh does. You know, if we 
love from a sense of compassion, if love comes out of a sense of compassion, hate comes out of a sense of justice. There's something about hate when you, when you hear hate speeches and people that just talk hatefully. They think they're right. They think that they're doing the right thing. There's a skewed sense of justice there that has been turned upside down. Why? Because of the works of the flesh. Because of separation with God. Now we see this. We, we see this happen in a very primitive way, in a very basic elementary way. We see it happen when a teenager acts up at home. You take something away, you do something, what do they do? They lash out. And they're motivated to lash out. And you see, you, you know that, that that's a skewed sense of judgment. Any parent who has a teenager or any brother who has a, 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 someone who acts out at home, you know, you can look at it and you say, you're just not seeing it right. Your judgment is all backwards. But it happens in a much more sophisticated way with totalitarian governments. When they propagate hate against their own people. It happens in a much more sophisticated way when groups come together and they devise an actual thought pattern. They devise an actual belief system that you know it's based in skewed judgment. You know that it's poor judgment. But they don't know. They can't see it. And what Paul is saying is, does it excuse them? No. It doesn't. It doesn't. Here's what the scriptures say. And I love how adamant the scriptures are about this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to go a little deeper, okay? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. How about that for Connect Community? Hope and love, huh? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. you got to understand that when John wrote this, John wrote this, and John was known as the apostle of love, okay? So this is, in fact, a pro-love, loving passage. When he wrote this, their, his people, the Jewish people, were under Roman rule. And every soldier that carried a spear, every soldier that carried a sword, that killed in the name of the emperor. You know who they, they killed in the name of? They killed in the name of God because the emperor was the son of God. They killed in the name of the son of God. And John is making it clear for every single reader, every single follower of Jesus. He's saying, listen, if you hate a person, you are just like them. You are acting in the same way because that is what makes you act as such. Eventually, you're going to hurt somebody, even if they're just dead to you in your own mind. Eventually... Something is going to happen that's just like uh, what they do to us. I love how the scripture is adamant about this. Because what John is saying is this. There's no act of hate that comes from the Spirit of God. And when you hear things, when you see on the news, you might see hate groups standing out there holding signs with scriptures. Right? Like we saw in Charlottesville. I was appalled when I saw one of the guys holding a sign with the John scripture. I'm like, what? Did you know that John was a Jew? Did you know that Jesus was a Jew? And you're here shouting, Jews will not replace us. Quoting It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. But that's what the flesh does. It's senseless. It's cues 
our judgment. And I love what Dr. Martin Luther King said so wisely. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said this, Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Now you have to understand this. Like I quote Dr. King. And I have quoted him last week, and I quoted this week because I can't find anybody in our modern history, recent history, or any people that has felt the sting of hate in our communities as much as African Americans. And I think history is there to prove. After the the, the, the African, African Americans in, in the United States have suffered the sting of hate. And here is a man who knew because of his conviction in Christ, because of he was a follower of Jesus, he knew that his ethnicity, that the color of his skin was sacred. He knew that that's the way God made him and that's the way God intended for him to live out. But he was hated for it. He was hated for it. And in that, feeling the pain and the sting of hate in his own self, in his own flesh, he stands and, and, and says this and leads the movement with this mindset to love your enemies, to love those who hate you. How can somebody have, have, have such a clarity of mind? How can somebody have such a mindset if not by the Spirit of God? He was a reverend. He was a pastor. People don't say that much, but he was. He was a theologian. He was a studied, a, man, a studied man who loved the scriptures. And he understood that hating a person is a work of the flesh. He understood that, that it is a skewed sense of judgment based on the works of the flesh that caused somebody to hate another person. Every time you, every time you hate somebody, I, let's put it this way. Every time hate affects yourself or someone else, it's destructive. It's very destructive. And Dr. King understood this. And he understood this, that somebody needed to stop the cycle. Somebody needed to put a stop to it. Somebody needed to say, I have been hated, but I will not hate. I have have been victimized, but I will not victimize. I have been hurt, but I will not hurt. I have been bullied. But I will not bully. I'm setting a standard and it is stopping right here. And I believe that you and I are called to do just that. Maybe you have been hurt. Maybe you have been hated. Maybe you have suffered. But today is the day for you to take a stand and say, I will not do those things. I will not repay evil with evil. I will repay evil with good. I will choose to love. This is a powerful, powerful principle. Now, How do we do that? What is the application behind this powerful truth? Because it sounds simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Well, we go back to the scripture uh, that we read at the beginning. And Paul shares it very clearly. There's clarity in it. You have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. It starts with your mindset. It's in your mind. You have to set your mind 
on the things of the Spirit. He says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I love how the Scripture is unwavering. There's no doubt here. When it comes to this, the Scripture is unwavering. It's about your mindset. It's about your thoughts. It's about where you choose to park your brain. It's about how you feed your mind. This is what, uh, what we find in 1 Peter. About setting your minds in the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What he's saying this is the same kind of thinking that Jesus had, we can have. And that kind of thinking is, even though I'm in the flesh, even though I have the desires and the passions and the, and the, the, the yearnings of the flesh, I don't have to leave, live by the flesh. Jesus has given us this life of the Spirit that we can live by. We can live by the life of the Spirit and we can submit the flesh to the Word of God and to the works of God. If you're a Christian in the room, then you understand from your relationship with God and by your relationship with the Scriptures and the Gospel, you will understand that your flesh is marred by sin. Your flesh is marred by sin. There's this thing in your flesh that makes a disconnect between you and God. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Somebody invited you here. They thought it was, you know, a good idea for you to be here. We like that you're here. But you're like, J.D., I'm not sure. I'm still testing the waters. I'm not sure about original sin and all that. I'm not all convinced. Then just take this this way. Something happened that caused separation between you and God. Because that's all sin is. Sin is separation between us and God. That's the nature of sin. It just puts a barrier between us and God. And Jesus illustrated this beautifully with one of his parables. It's widely known as the parable of the prodigal son. You might have heard it before. Parable of the prodigal son goes this way. A son in his young age took his inheritance while the father was still living and went his own way to live his life with his inheritance. And the picture here is that you and I, every single person on planet earth, has that inheritance. We come into existence with that inheritance. The desire for love, some kind of moral standard that we we're both born with. It's innate in us. We have this inheritance in us. But as we live apart from God, we spend it all. We spend it all and it becomes, it becomes wasted. It is wasted on things that are of no value. And then you, you find yourself in a position where I don't have that wealth in me anymore. I have been living and living and living and I have spent all my will when it comes to being good. I have spent all my patience. I have spent all my love. I have spent all my kindness. I have spent all my hope. And I don't know where the source of all that is. And, and, the, and then the way I'm living now, the, the parable, the, 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 the prodigal son makes a decision when he finds himself eating with pigs. And that's a, that's a harsh imagery, but what Jesus is saying there is that sometimes that's how we find ourselves emotionally and spiritually depleted. 
eating the kinds of food that really are not nutritionists to our spirit. It doesn't nourish us the way it should. And the parable ends with a son realizing that what he needed was not his inheritance, but his source of his inheritance. And maybe you're here today, and you have been feeling like you've been living apart from God, and what is hitting home to you, maybe, you know, you're not a hateful person, but you find yourself losing control over things that it's just not you. It's because you're spent. So you have spent your inheritance, but there's still something in you that tells you, I belong to my father. There is an essence in you on the inside that tells you, I, I, I belong to God. There's something that connects me to God. And I, I want to pray for you today as we end. Because the reason why Jesus came in the flesh, the reason Jesus, sometimes some people don't understand why Jesus had to be a man. Why, if God is God, why didn't he do whatever he did? Well, to protect your personhood. The way Jesus, what Jesus had to address was in the flesh. So there was no other way for him to conquer flesh unless in the flesh. And Jesus came in the flesh so that you wouldn't have to suffer the pain that the flesh can cause you to suffer. So that you can go back to your father like the prodigal son parable shows us. So that you can go back home. And that is my invitation for you today. If you want to take care of hate, if maybe you've been battling with hate in your heart, you need to... Take care of the flesh and set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And the way you do that, you come back home. Do you receive it this morning? Would you mind standing?